0: Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners, We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 200,000 downloads to date. Thanks to you all. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you.
1: Hi, and Happy New Year from Buffalo, New York. In my ongoing efforts to fight our national stereotype, I do want to let all of our listeners know that there has been documented evidence of Buffalo area residents playing golf, mowing lawns, and playing tennis in the middle of January. I'm Peter Sabota. While our podcast series has looked at intimate partner violence in the past, this particular episode presents a unique contribution to the overall discussion. Dr. Manisha Joshi will describe her work and tell us about her research regarding the role of changing attitudes around intimate partner violence in three Central Asian post-Soviet bloc countries. Dr. Joshi will tell us what she's learned about the context in which intimate partner violence occurs in these countries and its impact on help-seeking and reporting behavior of these women. Using household surveys as her primary data source, Dr. Joshi describes what she learned from her sample about the impact of gender roles and the role of socialization of women in these countries on their attitudes regarding violence directed at them from their partners. Dr. Joshi discusses her findings in the context of the educational level, ethnicity, and the socioeconomic status of the women, as well as the social conditions particular to countries engaged in nation building. Dr. Joshi describes the theoretical model that informed her thinking from both the social work and public health perspective. And finally, Dr. Joshi concludes her discussion by describing the implications of her research for social work practice further research and education. Dr. Manisha Joshi is an assistant professor at the University of South Florida's College of Behavioral and Community Sciences. She recently completed her PhD in Social Welfare from the University of Pennsylvania. She also holds an MPH from the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Joshi's area of research interests are centered around relationship violence across cultures. Dr. Joshi was interviewed by telephone by our own Dr. Philomena Cratelli, assistant professor here at the UB School of Social Work.
2: So we're speaking today with Dr. Manisha Joshi. She's going to be speaking about attitudes towards wife-beating among women in three Central Asian countries, an examination using UNICEF-supported multiple indicator cluster surveys. So I'm going to start with the first question. Why do you think it's important for practitioners, researchers, and policymakers to understand this particular
3: issue? First of all, thank you very much for having me. I think it is really important because when we talk about issues like intimate partner violence or violence, which really means violence that is committed by intimate partners like spouses or boyfriends against their female partners, This kind of violence does not happen in a social vacuum. This kind of violence is rooted in a social and cultural context. And people's attitudes about what is and what is not acceptable in intimate relationships is a reflection of these social and cultural norms. And and attitudes about intimate partner violence shape the social climate for both the perpetration. If the larger climate is such that people think it is okay to do that, then the chances are that the occurrence is going to be higher. Similarly, it also affects the victim's help-seeking efforts. If she thinks that she's not going to be supported or people think that these are family issues that should remain in the family, then she probably is not going to step forward to receive services or report the crime. And similarly for the family and community, if they feel it is not important for them to socially and be individually responsible for these kind of violence uh, acts, then they're not really going to do anything or support legislations or or have services. So I think it is extremely important for social workers and practitioners and policymakers to be thinking about this, because if we are talking about prevention, then we do need to think about changing attitudes.
2: Mm -hmm. You've picked a very interesting part of the world, and for some of us here, at least here at UB, it's pretty far away. What sparked your interest in this topic and that region?
3: I think these three countries, they're basically in the Central Asian region. There's no one particular definition as to what comprises Central Asia, but generally there are five countries that are included in Central Asia, so, you know, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and one more I'm uh, missing out on the name right now. And they really are an interesting location for research and since the soviet collapse um, it's basically these countries were virtually unknown to the world if i may say so but increasingly in the past uh, decade or so they have received a lot of international attention and especially given their economic and geopolitical significance you know, for example kazakhstan has lots of petroleum reserves these countries are a link between europe and asia and especially very important they are very close to afghanistan they're close to China, they're close to Russia. U.S. still has a military base in Kyrgyzstan. You know, so, so geopolitical significance is very high. And in addition, I mean, the region has witnessed a lot of migration, drug trafficking, sex trafficking has increased. And a very important trend is that currently this region is experiencing one of the fastest growth rates of HIV infections in the world. All these, I would say, combination of factors you know, have raised serious health and social concerns. In addition, these countries are very interesting because they are still young, are engaged in a nation-building phase, which has been full of economic, political, and social transitions, difficult ones. There's very little known about the condition of women in the former Soviet republics. There's a lot about Russia, but not so much about other former republics. And I was really interested in taking forward the discussions on the status of women in these countries. So that was what sparked my interest in the area.
2: It certainly sounds very, very cutting edge. What sparked your interest in the the topic of intimate partner violence and wife abuse?
3: That's been something that I have been working in for a very long time now. And I am originally from India. As a very young social work, fresh graduate, that was like the first thing that I worked with was intimate partner violence. I think it was one of the first international surveys called the World uh, Safe Surveys on Abuse in the Family Environment. So that was my first job, and I got involved in the India component of those international surveys and uh, learned more about partner violence and health effects, and that's how I kind of got into it. I think over a period of time, I got really, really interested in and was very fortunate to have mentors who always emphasized on the need to look at the prevention aspect. I was sort of working always towards thinking about the health effects, which is extremely important. But when I worked with some of the mentors, I was like, oh, I really need to focus on the prevention aspects of this as well. I mean, that should be the focus, a very social work macro perspective. And I think that's how I got involved in the partner violence and prevention side of it. I think specifically I got interested in the multiple indicated cluster surveys, which I really didn't know much about them before I started working in them was through a project that I was doing with WHO, so I was a co-author on a background paper, and there was a colleague from UNICEF, she talked about it, and I was like, wow, these data, these large health surveys have started including modules on partner violence, which in itself, you know, speaks volumes about the recognition in the international community that it is a really big, significant public health issue, and also a risk factor for other, other health problems. So I got really interested and was fascinated that for some of the countries, these surveys were really the first national estimates on uh, anything related to partner violence. So I think that's how I kind of got into the, the area and the surveys. (laughs)
2: <laughs> very, very interesting. I'm particularly interested in knowing more about the multiple indicator cluster surveys because, mm-hmm. as you were saying, I think a lot of emerging countries and countries in transition don't necessarily have the resources and the funds to collect data about themselves Absolutely. and that this type of large-scale survey can really add to our knowledge. Can you tell us a little bit about more about what actually the multiple indicator cluster survey is, what it comprises? Mm-hmm.
3: Sure. So multiple indicator cluster surveys are really very large, nationally representative household surveys. And they are demographic health surveys, so they collect information about a lot of things. And specifically, these surveys are basically conducted by UNICEF in collaboration with the state agencies. So both are partners in it. And they have modules on women's health, uh, on, on knowledge about HIV, on use of services and uh, child discipline. So primarily the objective in establishing this survey program was to gather or to help the developing countries to fill in their gaps related to the situation of women and children and basically to monitor their health over time. I think they are one of the key data sources for measuring the progress towards Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations. They were started off in 1995, and are conducted periodically, kind of like in every five years. So the data that I used, that was from the third round of MIX, which was 2005 and 2006. These surveys only ask questions from women, so men are not involved. And women from the ages of 15 to 49 are asked questions about a variety of stuff, including their demographics and their reproductive health and a lot of other stuff. There are some core modules to them about health, and there are some optional modules, like if a country chooses to use questions on, say, female genital mutilation, or wants to use questions on, say, attitudes towards wife beating, then those are optional modules. Those can be included in addition to the core modules. So the module on attitudes was an optional module, and it was used for the first time in the third round of mix. And they use, you know, stratified cluster sampling approach. So you have regions in the country. So within the regions, then you divide between rural and urban areas, and then you draw out your samples, household samples from that. And they are currently getting ready for their fourth round. And about 100 countries, I think, have done mixed surveys from 1995 onwards. They also collaborate with another program, another demographic health survey program called the Demographic Health Surveys DHS surveys which have been going on for, I think, longer than mixed surveys, and uh, just, to, you know, just to ensure that they are not duplicating the countries.
2: Interesting. So is this data available to researchers in general, yeah. or you had to go through some specific process?
3: Yeah, so that's the great part about it, that it's publicly available. For most of the countries, it is publicly available, and for a few countries, they might be restricted, but you can write to, I think, or and they might connect you to the state collaborator and they might give you access. But for pretty much most of the countries, it's publicly available.
2: So how do they decide on which countries to do the research in? It's more the willingness of the country to collaborate or just where there's a lack of data? How do they decide which countries to include in these mix?
3: I would think that it would be a combination of all these. So countries that were willing to do and uh, these Central Asian countries definitely were willing to do it. They had kind of signed the CEDAW, the convention, Elimination of Violence Against Women Convention. They they were signatories to that. And there was a lot of international pressure that they need to do something about violence in these countries. So I think that that was, I'm sure, one of the reasons. But we do need to remember that these are not violence against women surveys. These are health surveys that are including these modules now. So definitely willingness of the countries, definitely a need of the countries, or I would say an indirect pressure on the countries to be looking good in terms of the you know Millennium Development Goals or other international standards is another reason. And also, I think just collaboration with other household survey programs like the DHS, all these combinations, or all these factors, I'm sure, played a role in deciding which countries to go for. They also have data for Iraq. So which is fascinating that they were able to do that in the midst of war and everything.
2: That is very, very interesting. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about why, you know, we as social workers should be concerned about this area.
3: Sure. So first of all, I think from a social work macro kind of perspective, I do think that we need to think about prevention. When we think about prevention or when we think about, you know, concepts of, I think it is very important for us to think about attitudes in the larger environment. I'll give you an example. Say for example, if as a social worker I'm working in an HIV prevention program, then it is extremely important for me to also have knowledge about the attitudes within a country or within a larger context. Why? Because if a large proportion of women in a society consider, say, arguing with a husband, with one's husband, or refusing to have sex, as justified reasons for the husband to beat the wife, right? Then because of fear of violence or being, or the fear of being beaten up. Those women are very unlikely to confront men or be able to talk about condom use and all those things. If we want our health programs to be successful, we need to incorporate this kind of knowledge in our work. And as social workers, I think we do talk about cultural competencies and cultural humility and to be able to design culturally relevant programs. And whenever we talk about that, I think it is important to talk about attitudes. I think it's especially important because in a globalized world, we keep on moving from one nation to the other, one culture to the other, and this kind of knowledge can be very important for social workers to help design programs which are more relevant to the communities, the immigrant communities in a country. So that's I think that is definitely one reason. And also other aspects would be, I think, that there are programs that are coming up. It's not a new problem that people are thinking about. People have been working in this area for a long time and they have been struggling with that how do we do or what do we do or what programs work in terms of like being able to change people's attitudes. And there frankly there hasn't been much evaluation research. So very few programs that have shown promise, but some of them have been successful. Like one example would be Seoul City in South Africa. Very successfully used mass media. Again, very important for social work macro practitioners. And micro practitioners as well, and they use media to affect behaviors and affect attitudes, and were were successful to a certain extent. Then there are other programs also. One example is called the Image Program in South Africa, and they have been able to put uh, issues like women's rights, providing more political and employment opportunities to women, microfinance. They've been able to combine all those and use community organizing to basically try and create a climate of non-violence or zero tolerance for violence. So I think all these activities, whether we're talking about working on a micro level as a social worker with one woman, or we're talking about community organizing on a macro level, I think this is an area that social workers have to think about. They can't escape it, I think. (laughs)
0: You know? <laughs> absolutely, yeah.
2: absolutely, and it's interesting to hear you know models from one country that can be somewhat adapted to fit other ones It's interesting to hear about South Africa. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about back to the research piece about your sample. Who
3: comprised your sample? Right. So basically, women who were between the ages of 15 and 49, which is the reproductive age group, they were the main sample, and the samples were quite big. It ranged from like 8,000 women in Kazakhstan to almost like 4,000 and 6,000 in the other two countries. So basically 15 to 49 reproductive, which is quite standard for international health surveys. And that is what makes them comparable also. It takes care of some of the problems that arise when we have samples that are not comparable. So those were the samples. What happened was that these women, now there is a difference in terms of Who was asked questions about attitudes towards wife beating? So there are differences in terms of in certain countries, only the currently married women were asked questions, were asked this module, and in other countries, everybody in that age group was asked that question. So those kind of things one has to take into account. But the module looked like this. So the women were asked that uh, sometimes a husband is annoyed or angered by things which his wife does. In your opinion... Is a husband justified in hitting or beating his wife in the following situations? Okay, so the woman was given five situations. First is, if she goes out without telling him, so she could answer yes, no or don't know. If she neglects the children, if she argues with him, if she refuses to have sex with him, and if she burns the food. So five situations. Okay, if she goes out without telling him, neglects the children, argues with the husband, refuses to have sex, and if she burns the food. So these were like uh, five questions. Very simple questions, and very carefully selected, though, to kind of cover the entire range of so-called transgressions from gender roles that women can indulge in. And the way mixed or the UNICEF people are looking at these questions is, if a woman says that, yes, it is okay for a husband to... Beat his wife right if she goes out without telling him, or if she says yes to any of those five, they consider it almost equal to having actually experienced intimate partner violence. Okay, so the actual victimization is being considered equal to saying yes to any of these questions. But that is not how I look at it. So I do not necessarily believe that just because somebody has said that it is okay for a husband to beat his wife if she refuses to have sex, then she must have also experienced it. That's not how I'm looking at it. I look at these questions as the extent to which women have been socialized to believe that men kind of own them in a variety of ways, including that they own their bodies. They can't refuse to have sex. That is about the sample and the module.
2: Well, I looked over some of the PowerPoints and uh, you had some very interesting findings, I think. And maybe you could share with us a little bit about what you found.
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so two of the three countries, which is Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, the poor countries. Kazakhstan is actually a middle-income country, you can say. It's very, very rich in petroleum. And in Tajikistan, which is the poorest of the three countries, it is always amazing when I say that, that, that three in every four currently married women, said that it is okay for a husband to beat his wife for at least one of the five reasons. Okay, so they said yes for one of the, any of those five reasons that I told you about. And in Kyrgyzstan, one out of every two currently married women said the same, that it is okay for a husband to beat his wife for at least one of the five reasons that were given to them. And so these are like extremely high prevalence levels. And they are so high that they instantly jump on you. And they are almost like saying that they need urgent attention from social work and public health practitioners, researchers, policymakers, whatever have you. And in relation to these high prevalence levels, the prevalence level that I found in the data was relatively quite low for Kazakhstan. So 12%, about 12% of the women said that. Now, I think we need to do more research and explore it more because there was a survey that which, which was done in 1999, and that showed a prevalence level of 30%. So within a six, seven years period, it is quite possible that actually the acceptance level has either gone down, or it is also possible that the context in which the questions were placed, because the same questions were asked in the, that survey as well. But the context of in which the questions were placed might be different, so might have elicited different prevalence estimates. So Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan are like way above. Some of the reasons that were like highest in terms of acceptance were neglecting the children. So that's really, really high. Even for Kazakhstan, which had such low overall acceptance, the acceptance of wife getting beaten up by a husband if she neglects the children is quite high. Okay, so that's one of the high percentages. Then arguing with the husband or going out without telling him again are quite high. I think in Kazakhstan, even for something like burning food, which is a very alien concept in the developed world, but it's a very common kind of scenario and a very common question in developing countries. Even for that, almost 40% of the women said that it is okay to be beaten up by a husband if the wife burns food. So these are some of the prevalence estimates. I also found that there were differences in terms of factors that are associated with accepting any of the reasons. So say women who were less educated were more likely to accept the reasons but the interesting point is that it was really the women who were very highly educated so it didn't really matter if we move from less than high school to secondary level but it was really when we moved from secondary to higher level that is when the reduction in the acceptance was much higher okay so it really makes a difference if you have like much higher level of education and we do need to remember that we are talking about translation these are former soviet republics and in soviet union education was free and compulsory so literacy rates in these countries are still very high and there were differences in terms of ethnic groups women were not really asked a specific question of on which ethnic group do you belong to but they were asked what language do you speak so based on that it was inferred that okay this person is a person's ethnicity is Russian or Uzbek or Kazakh and women who said they speak Russian were much less likely Except accept violence from a husband and women who had multiple children, women in certain regions, women in urban areas were more likely to approve of intimate partner violence.
2: Yes, I thought that was a little surprising for some reason when I was looking it over thinking there might be the opposite. I mean, what was your, some of your thinking about that finding?
3: Do you mean like about the urban areas or do you mean the... Yes,
2: yes, uh, yes. Do for you know, some yes. of my research, I've been doing it in Pakistan and there's more a correlation with rural areas than urban areas. So I found that interesting that came out.
3: I think there are like mixed studies that I get about it. And in urban areas, one of the arguments is that there is so much of... People People really don't know each other so much. There isn't so much social support or social network and there is a certain amount of anonymity or isolation that comes with urban living, which can add to violence. So there are different perspectives on it. On it, I should look more into it. And uh, about a young age, I think that's like one of the most interesting finding that one would expect that younger women would be less likely to say it's okay for a man to hit his wife. But either there were no differences, Or if there were differences, then younger women were more likely to say that. And because these are cross-sectional data and the women were not followed over time, so we can't really say that with age, their acceptance levels are going down. We definitely cannot say that. But by this finding, we can definitely say that a certain amount of intergenerational transmission of these kind of attitudes going on. And I really think that the young women in these countries have seen more difficult times they have seen a lot of social, political, economic, difficult transitions and in certain regions of these countries, the climate is, has become increasingly conservative and a lot of things that have come in with the whole nation building phases, certain groups of people have started sticking on to like to ethnic culture and values, traditional values and culture, and which has also meant that the restrictions on women have increased. I think they have been experiencing such difficult times and difficult phases that and age of marriage has been going down polygamy has increased the environment itself I think is difficult right now and I think some of it is reflected in this finding and uh, yeah so I think that would be my take on it I think
2: it's really very interesting this kind of leads me to a little bit about your theoretical framework that shaped the area of inquiry it, it sounds like you were kind of leading up to that a little bit
3: Yeah, so I've always been very fascinated by the socio-ecological model, basically because I do have a background both in social work and public health, so I really like the model uh, because it kind of combines both. So the social, the ecological model really is very often used in public health, and it thinks about violence as a problem that is basically grounded in the interplay of a lot of factors individual relationships social cultural factors environmental factors and say that it is a mix of these factors which leads to victimization or perpetration and individual factors could be the person's age or level of education ethnicity those kind of things relationship factors could be say when we're talking about intimate partner violence it could be spousal age difference it could be difference in the occupational status of the spouses it could be duration of marriage number of children in the family, you know, it it could also be household income, those kind of factors, and then also like larger social, cultural, environmental factors, you know, the policies, the larger level policies in the country, socioeconomic status of women, whether they have divorce rights or not, those kind of things. So the ecological model kind of combines all these factors and then tries to understand how these are associated with, say, in my case, how these combine to affect in combination or individually, the acceptance of partner violence by women. So I think it's a great, I really like the framework because it provides an integrated approach to helping understanding and acceptance of partner violence. And I think it also helps us develop a prevention focused understanding. We can think about, okay, different levels that we need to intervene at and it helps policymakers to actually come up with concrete strategies that can be ob- adopted at different levels of the ecology at the individual level family level community and society level so I kind of really like it so that's the framework that I used so I looked at individual family and community related factors that could explain women's acceptance of intimate partner violence so the individual level factors were women's age their ethnicity level of education and how that was associated with acceptance of the reasons for partner violence. The family and household, age at marriage, spouse of age difference, number of children, you know, whether women had autonomy in household decision-making. Those kind of variables were included. And at the community level, wealth status of the community where she was living, rural, urban, region within the country. And I would have loved to have many more variables, but I was kind of limited by the kind of questions and the, the number of questions that these surveys had asked. So those were the only variables I could kind of work with in terms of the social ecological model.
2: It is an excellent model, though, for I think it can be used cross-culturally and it's really good for that reason. So maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the practical implications of your research for practice, policy, and social work education.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. I think in terms of like the macro social work kind of perspective, I think an important first step for all countries you know, is to promote Awareness about intimate partner violence and about the harmful social norms through I think collaborative efforts by the government, non-government and community-based organizations and the international community. So a lot of concepts that we talk about in social macro practice, collaboration I think is extremely, extremely important. If we do that, then I think what is going to happen is that a high, we, we can try and build a high sense of social and personal responsibility towards IPV and uh, IPV as an intimate partner violence and when we have a climate which does not kind of accept partner violence, I think that's really important because it kind of acts as a a natural, as a social deterrent for the perpetrators, right? Just like we don't lie even if there's nobody around us, you know, it's a similar kind of concept and I think so collaboration is extremely important for social workers, extremely important. And I think as social workers, we also need to play a very important role in terms of designing, design of preventive measures, such as in you know, public education campaigns. And given that in the study, even younger women were like equally likely to say, to accept violence. I think it's extremely important that education campaigns need to be developed, which kind of are aimed at individuals of all ages, and also men and boys, and women and girls, survey does not include men but of course we have to have to include men and boys and work with them as well so I think that is one definitely collaboration is definitely one important aspect and the second aspect is I think another practical implication would be that there's so much information we can gather about attitudes but there's so little out there in terms of like well-evaluated programs so I think definitely in terms of doing more evaluation research I can't emphasize enough how much it is needed. So I think that is definitely one. And uh, we do have examples coming out from Africa and some of the Latin American countries also, I think. And they have shown that it is possible to use uh, radio dramas to construct messages and take up educational activities, which can increase knowledge and awareness and change in attitudes and norms. And it can also increase willingness of people to take appropriate action against IPV. So those kind of things are being shown by those programs. So I think there is definitely scope for these countries also to look into those programs and, of course, carefully think about them, carefully tailor them according to the local conditions like the ethnic composition, region of the country. And social workers definitely can use their the competencies that we always talk about, like cultural competencies, cultural, human, those kind of concepts, and have, can play a very, very important role in terms of like designing programs. I also think that in terms of micro social work stuff that we do, working with clients, so if we're working with health programs, prevention of HIV, HIV prevention or even like family planning or seeking medical care or, or generally in the health services, I think it is important for social workers to incorporate or pay attention to this kind of knowledge or to incorporate the person and environment perspective in all these health programs. So I think that is extremely important. You have to think like that, otherwise the health programs are not going to make any sense. You know, just the, just the expectation that women always should obtain permission to go out can literally restrict women's use of health services. So those are the things that we do need to, all of all social workers, I, mean, I think we do need to place the person in the context where we are working so i think that is extremely extremely important to include and then community organizing i think is extremely important for social workers the program that i'm talking about soul city and image program in south africa community organizing is such an important element in those programs and also use of mass media and i'll tell you about like a really really interesting study in india basically they looked at how the introduction of cable television had impacted had led to an improvement in the status of women. And they did find that mass media has the potential to modify beliefs underlying violence against women and girls. And they did find that the areas that did get cable television, the women in those areas reported lower acceptability of partner violence. I don't remember when was the follow-up period. Less than some preference, more autonomy, and reduced fertility. So I think mass media, community organizing, personal environment perspective, collaboration, all these macro concepts are extremely, extremely important and can be totally, completely used by social workers, practitioners, policy makers, anybody working in this area.
2: <laughs> yes, I mean these can be adapted in different contexts and, yeah. and situations. It's Absolutely. really important to have some glean from this, some positive things that we can use to try to address this really important problem. I think this research is just fascinating and it's made such a contribution in an area where for many of us we don't really know that much about this part of the world and you've really based it on a very large sample and it's fantastic that all these women were reached because that's another issue, just reaching so many women is not always easy. So what do you have coming up next? What are some of the next research projects that you have in the future planned?
3: So this is like very new to me so I kind of recently finished this as my Ph.D. thesis, so I'm ah, uh-huh. still recovering from it, Yeah. <laughs> I do have a few things coming up, so I am very eagerly waiting for the Mix 4 surveys, and the fieldwork is going on for that right now, so whenever that becomes available, I would love to look at the trends, because I do want to look at the trends over time in terms of acceptance. And I am also getting ready to work with some of the colleagues who are looking at the use of physical and psychological punishment to discipline children.
0: Oh. And women's
3: attitudes towards using physical punishment to discipline children. So we are I think very soon we're going to start working on that. I'm also very interested in looking at the association between attitudes towards partner violence and use of physical punishment on children. So those kind of explorations. Also thinking about some qualitative explorations, actually going there and doing it, because a lot of these surveys, because they are not violence against women surveys, I think talking to the mother-in-laws is such an important aspect of violence, especially in that region of the world. I would love to do that. And ultimately, I think I would love to collaborate with colleagues and maybe hopefully come up with some kind of a public education campaign, which kind of includes the information that I could get from these data, basically base it on those data and come up with that kind of strategies. I'm not a communication specialist, so I don't know much about that, but I would love to work with people in the communication, you know, health communication arena and try and do something around that.
2: Well, it sounds like yeah. you're going to be very busy but very productive. I mean, it's a, such a fascinating project That's, and yeah. it's wonderful to hear that you're going to continue to explore it in different directions. So I don't know if you want to say anything to kind of sum up or wrap up, any final comments that you want to make?
3: I think I would say some stuff for the social work students, maybe. This is a question that comes up very often when I talk to my students, and they always say that, well, then you were working in India, you know, you haven't worked so much here. And so I always tell them that the strategies remain the same, concepts remain the same, the macro practice, community organizing remains the same person and environment perspective remains the same, you know. So the concepts remain the same, but you of course have to understand the context. Cultural humility is very important. And it is extremely, extremely important to look at the bigger picture. You know, we can come up with like the most fascinating programs, but if we haven't thought about the most basic stuff, that what the context of a study or a program is, then it's pretty much not going to work.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think
3: that would be my message, that do think about the context. Do spend the time in the field to get the history of the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: yes, yes, and, yes. Yeah,
3: yeah. And and you teach macro too, for the reason right? Yes, so, yes, <laughs> I do.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that would be my message to... Everybody that do spend the time to understand the community and the context, I think it definitely does pay in the long run if you want to have effective programs. I think yeah, these are valuable really
2: messages that you're giving your students, and they're lucky to really be able to benefit from your, you know, your. You, it sounds like you had incredible experience prior to entering academia, and and this research can only add to that. They're very lucky to have you.
3: Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. We'll take
3: care. Okay, you have a good day. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Manisha Joshi discuss intimate partner violence in three Central Asian countries on Living Proof.
2: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.
0: At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.